Welcome to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker, and to the last episode of Season 1, which has all been on rent. Across the season, I've spoke to tenants, landlords, politicians, and experts on topics such as renters' rights and building social housing. This last episode, though, is a little different. I wanted to have a broader conversation to discuss all the themes raised in the series so far. And to do so, I brought together two of the people whose opinions and insights I value most when it comes to working out what I think about any big issue. Aaron Bastani is my colleague at Navara Media. As will be obvious from this conversation, he has an incredible range of knowledge on a dazzling array of topics, and he's not afraid to be somewhat iconoclastic when it comes to forming an opinion. He doesn't just follow the crowd. I was also joined by Gary Stevenson. Gary is a former banker, and he was Citibank's most profitable trader in 2011. Pretty incredible. He achieved that status by correctly predicting that interest rates would stay low after the financial crisis. That was when the rest of the economics world assumed the economy would bounce back. Gary understood that with inequality so high, with working people struggling so much, there was no chance of a bounce back. Gary is now a journalist and campaigner against wealth inequality. I enjoyed this conversation immensely. Topics addressed ranged from working class landlords to how the politics of demographic ageing affect housing policy and even what Christianity can teach us about inheritance. As I say, these guys have range. Before we get to that chat, though, some housekeeping. As I've said, this is the last episode of our series on the rental crisis. The next series is going to be on whether COVID changed the world. I'm really excited about it. I'm excited for you to hear it. I've got some great interviews in the can. And for the next series, we'll be releasing the episodes over a a much shorter period of time. The first series has been a bit of an experiment. We're just getting used to our new work patterns. I've been asking for lots of voluntary labour from my producers, Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. So big thanks to them. Um, And we think we're going to be in a sort of better, stronger place to release the next series on a tighter schedule. I want you all to be able to binge on Crash Course. We're not keeping you waiting for these episodes on purpose. Don't worry. Um, After that next series, I'm also planning to do a few one-off shows um, doing proper deep dives into stories in the news. As I hope you can tell, we've got big plans for this project and to keep growing and professionalising, we really do need your support. So if you value what we're doing, please sign up for as little as £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That will give you access to all past and future episodes of Crash Course, including the whole of this 90 minute long chat with Gary and Aaron. Aaron, Gary, thank you so much for joining me on Crash Course. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Um, we've got so much to talk about today. I was wondering how to structure this this interview or this conversation because we're going to cover so many topics. What I wanted to start with, actually, though, Aaron, is an article you wrote in 2021. So it was titled, Housing Security Transformed My Mental Health, an angle we sort of haven't really covered so much on the series so far. Could you talk about you know what you talked about in, in that article? 2021, wow, that sounds like so long ago. So... My wife and I bought a house right in the teeth of COVID. We bought it right at the start of the crisis, which was very fortunate for us because it was a it was a buyer's market, really. There was a lot of uncertainty. Lots of landlords were trying to shift HMOs or rental properties. Obviously, what happened subsequently, and we could, obviously we will talk about this, is that prices went up. But very briefly, that uncertainty created a buyer's market. So you could just lowball offers and you could get lucky. 
one every five times, which if you're making a bunch of offers is great. So there was a house we put a bid in for, I think we bid 300. Um, and we bought it. Terrace house, nothing special. This is in Portsmouth, it's not in London. Well, it's not, I, I love it. It's, it's something special. It's the nicest house I've ever lived in. But it's not like a, a palace or anything. And obviously in London, 300 isn't going to get you very much. Um, and what became really clear after just two or three months was the psychological impact of what that meant. You know, the house, we hadn't done much work to the house. Um, it wasn't to look at any any nicer than where we'd previously rented. Obviously, it's not as in the in the sort of settings where I've lived previously, like in London. So you didn't have the social capital, you didn't have all the cafes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the psychological disposition I found myself in was entirely new, which is wow, I don't have to worry about rents. I don't have to worry about somebody jacking up the rent in several months without me knowing. I can put stuff on the walls. I can make a bit of noise in the evening and not have to worry about the neighbors. I mean, I, I actually, I'm the one that moans about the neighbors, but <laughs> you know, the point is you're, you're the master of your own destiny in a way. I don't want to overemphasize this because of course you still owe money to the banks and so on. You know, we took on a 300,000 pound debt. We don't own the asset outright, but yeah, the implications for my mental health were massive. And almost immediately, I found my relationship to the community I was in changed. I was an inch taller. I'd walk the dog, look people in the eye, hey, good afternoon, good morning, because you're a fucking homeowner. But, but, you got, but, but were you genuinely an inch taller? Oh. <laughs> is this physical or is that a, a it's phys- saying? Well, physiological, right? It was like, you just have more confidence. You feel more happy. I was smiling more. I was sleeping better. And I didn't realize why for a long time. You think, and you, after three, four months, like I say, you look back and you go, Wow, I've been really, really fucking good recently. Why? Is it have I stopped eating something? Have I started start a new workout regimen? No, nope. own a property. And it, c- can I ask you how old were you when you bought the house? What, what age were you uh, this time? Thirty six. No, I suppose the reason I ask is it, that was the first time in your adult life you'd ever felt a measure of housing security. Is that correct? Yeah. So both of my parents rented when I was growing up. <clears throat> my mum finally got on the housing ladder. After I'd gone to university, she bought a, a one-bed flat. It was um, it was really a, a subprime mortgage. You know, she had a hundred percent mortgage plus an uncons- uh, you know a five percent loan on top of the hundred five percent mortgage. Basically, she was one of the people that basically she, she, people like her are why the credit crunch happens uh, in the United States. So she got in the housing ladder for the first time uh, in two thousand and what six, and then my dad bought a house around the same time. But prior to then, both had rented. Funny story with my dad, he bought an interest-only mortgage just before the crisis happens, and he was on an interest-only mortgage all the way through to last year. This guy, I was like, you do not realise how lucky you were because the base rate of interest was like 0.5% for the last 13 years while you were paying off the mortgage. And he's like, yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? He, you know, he had about a third deposit because you know what some immigrants are like. They like big deposits, pay cash, etc. Um... And so, yeah, interesting stories. My mum, buggered by the housing market. My dad made real advantage, took real advantage with low cost of credit over the last 13 years. And then, yeah, me, I was the the first one of that age to really be a homeowner. Yeah, so we'll put all of our housing situations on the table before we get going. I mean, I've talked in the series about, I'm obviously a renter, I share a flat in Hackney with two other people of a similar age. I suppose background is also that my parents own own the house. They've lived in the same house in Leighton for, I think, 40 years. 
So you can imagine how the value of that house has changed over those 40 years. I think that's the, probably the part of the world where houses have sort of multiplied in, 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 in as, as, as significant a degree as, as one could imagine. So I suppose even though I've got, I've always had unsecure housing myself, I do have that sort of backdrop of, of security and that insurance policy in a way, because also, you know, they have a spare room. Um, as I said, this, this is a getting out our situation. My question for you, Gary, I presume you first became a homeowner when you became a millionaire. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bought the flat, which I, which I live in now, in um, early 2012. So, yeah, as some people may know, I was a trader from 2008 until 2014. Um, and... In 2011, I was Citibank's number one trader in the in the, in the world, and I made got paid quite a lot of money. And um, yeah, I just I got a big lump of money just dropped in my bank account. And um, I so at the time, one big thing that I was betting on was that interest rates would stay low forever, that basically asset prices would really go through the roof, that money was being devalued. So obviously, I thought you know I need to get a property as, as quickly as possible. I don't want to sit on this cash. Um, yeah, and it was weird for me because, you know, it's such huge sums of money, you know, and I was, I was in 2012, I'd just turned 25. Um, I just looked at a place and just bought the first place that I looked at, basically, um, which is a bit crazy to think about. And um, I moved to, to Japan, to Tokyo shortly after that, so I ended up renting it out for a bit. Um, then I moved back to London 2014, was in it, I was in... Oxford did my master's 2017 to 19, renting privately, and I've been back in that place. So yeah, I still own it. It's it's very close where I used to work in the city. And has it? Can I ask? Is it, you know, has it massively increased in value since you bought it? And <sighs> well, that... I haven't had it valued, but yeah, I mean, I bought it in early 2012, and there was a really big rise in house prices, sort of late 2012 and sort of throughout 2013. So I bought it for 500,000. It's it's a nice two bed, two bathroom flat on. Limehouse Marina, so it's got views over the water. It's not like massive or anything, but yeah, it's nice. It's it's got a bit of space. I don't think it's anything crazy, but I would guess it's probably worth something like eight hundred or something now. It's the, that's a bit of a stab in the dark. Prices are super volatile. Um, you can yeah, email in your offers like for Gary's <laughs> yeah. flat. Uh, all you have to do first is sign up to the Patreon, uh, and then you get a chance of winning Gary Stevenson's flat um, on the waterfront. That's guaranteed right now asterix for one night, <laughs> for one night only. <laughs> when he next goes to japan you can stay in his bed um all right that's where we're coming from i'm sure we'll sort of refer back to that i definitely want to talk about japan later on when we talk about yimbyism um how i thought we'll go through this is sort of talk about solutions and the politics of those solutions so we talked about earlier on in the series i've talked to people who sort of really at the sharp end of the housing crisis i want to talk less about you know the current vagaries of renting in london and more about how it can be resolved and so i've grouped these into sort of four categories i've got tenants rights and rent control as sort of one group of policy areas i've got building social housing i've got georgism so the sort of theories of henry george and then yimbyism and so we're going to sort of go through those one by one and i want to start with rent controls um so in this series i've spoken to someone in vienna um she lived in a rent controlled apartment she felt like the system worked pretty well but economists tend to hate rent controls they hate them so the swedish economist asa lindbeck is often quoted here because he seems to have a pretty good way with words he said rent controls were the fastest way to destroy a city other than bombing and this isn't just some crank he chaired the nobel prize committee for economics so an established guy um, i've also got here a 2012 poll of leading 
economists. And this is from a Vox article, but I think that it was originally done by the University of Chicago. So a neoliberal university, but I think most people accept this, this, this survey is fairly legitimate. And it found that asking academic economists, do you think rent controls are a good idea? 49% disagreed and 32% strongly disagreed. So you've got overwhelming consensus. Um, over 80% of economists think rent controls are a bad idea. Gary, I'm going to go to you first because you have two economics degrees. Oxford yeah. and LSE doesn't get more established than that. And um, what's your take on rent controls? So I, I guess the risk with rent controls is they're great if you get the rent control department. Um, but what generally has happened in places where they're brought in is there's not enough rent control departments for the people that want them. Um, we, we've already seen in this country quite a significant degree in buy-to-let landlordism. I know a lot of people will be celebrating that. Buy-to-let landlordism is the type of housing that is used by a large number of poor people. Um, and so just the, when you said when you said there's we've already seen a lot of buy to let landlords. Did you mean selling up? Was that yeah, buy to let landlords is selling up and yeah. no longer doing the, being a landlord. Um, and we can talk more about why that might be um, and whether it's desirable. Um, but you know we've all seen what's happened to the private rental market in London. Um, I think most people would agree that this is to some degree driven by landlords stopping being landlords. Um, we're all going to agree the situation for renting in London is not good. But until you have dealt with where do these people live when we reduce the supply of rental housing, you probably don't want to reduce that supply. Do you see what I'm saying? As much as the end situation people who rent these places is often not good, where else, you, where else are they going to go? So I think unless we're going to combine that with, for example, a big increase in social housing, you probably want to be careful about doing anything that's going to encourage more landlords to stop being landlords until you have answered that question of where are those people going to live? Yeah, and we, 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 we talked about this, uh, I think, on, on episode three. Uh, we were talking about what happened in London over the last year. And so if, if you're one, why would it be the case that landlords selling up would reduce the sort of... Well, it's, it's clear why that would re reduce the supply of rental properties. But some people might think, well, but a, a household of renters has bought that house so there should be no yeah. net decrease but i think the way you square that circle is actually people who own their houses tend to live more spaciously and so well there's also the question of what what do very rich people, people do you know very rich people have a have a have a choice right they can of what they own and they can simply buy big houses and big flats for their kids and for themselves or they can buy properties and rent them out um and if you make renting less attractive, then they might simply choose, well, we'll just live in the properties ourselves. You know? give the, this property that we might have rented out, we'll just let yeah. our daughter live there. My, my first ever interaction with rent controls was I went to Argentina to visit a friend of mine who I studied with at LSE. And he was from a very wealthy family, as a lot of LSE students are. And he said, I'll meet me at this place. And we went to this place and it was a massive empty apartment. And I was like, you know, why is this empty apartment? He was like, oh, this is what we do here. We just... You know, I live out on the outskirts of town and this is our, this is our city apartment. And I was like, why don't you rent it out? And he was like, well, we can't. Like, it's the rent, we, it's, it's rent controlled. So like, we could only charge this. So we just keep it for our own personal use. You know, we already have a lot of apartments in London which are kept empty because wealthy, you know, landlordism is not really a great option for very wealthy people because it's hassle. You know, very wealthy people want low hassle investments. You know, they don't want tenants in their 
apartments anyway. So, I mean, of course, that's not going to happen in every apartment in London. You know, very wealthy people don't own houses in Ilford where I'm from. It's not going to happen everywhere. But um, basically, it comes back to the same question. You know, until you are going to provide ways to get poor, because when you talk about people move into these properties, I think rent controls would be really good for people who are not very poor and have that deposit and want to buy because they are the people who will buy the things that the landlords are selling. But it's it will be bad for the, the very poor who are the people who are privately renting. Do you see what I'm saying? So in, in the end, you, it's, you create a conflict between the very poor and the middle class in a sense. So I suppose where I'm coming from on this question, so I've been thinking about this a lot throughout the series. I, I think my position is that rent controls are not going to solve the housing crisis. But rent controls, at least some form of rent control, so at least limits to how much rents can rise, say, is the bare minimum to make private renting tolerable. So so long as we have a private rental sector, we will need some degree of rent control to give people security into the future. Because obviously, it, it, it's a big problem in my life that I don't know if my rent is going to increase by 15 or 20% this August. So, so people can forward plan, you need some. Now, obviously, I accept your argument that that will if anything, so I think there's sort of disagreement about the extent to which it will reduce supply, but it's certainly not going to increase supply, right? So so that's why I think this this would need to be part of a package whereby you also have mass building of social housing and you also have yeah. um, potentially planning reform so that more gets built in the private sector. But I, I, I don't think we can really wait any longer. I don't think we can say we'll only do some degree of rent control once we've built the social housing and once we've um, you know got the, the private companies to build more. So I feel like it's also a bit of a stopgap measure to make private renting tolerable in the meantime. Aaron, I want to go to you on this question. Yeah, first thing to say is I'm really open to persuasion on so many things. You know, we we all want solutions that work. So if it, if it, if it's empirically found that actually rent controls are counterproductive, I support rent controls, right? But if there's empirical data that shows actually you're wrong, fine. I'm happy to oppose them. I'm not ideologically committed to them. I think going back to what you said about the economists, Michael, they all sort of oppose rent controls. It would be interesting to go back to them and say, well, do you oppose price stability for housing? Do you think we should have stable prices for housing, stable, predictable prices for a commodity which takes up 30% plus of people's annual income, right? You know, people are are, are quite rightly losing the plot over 17.5% food inflation right now, which we found this out a few days ago. Kantar, uh, opinion uh, polling company, found out that food inflation for the year to March 2023 has gone up by 17.5%. Loads of people's rent goes up that much, yet it doesn't seem to be a big deal. People say, well, food is a necessity. How can this happen? It's so much higher than, you know, CPI inflation. The exact same thing applies to rents, yet we don't talk about it. So I think, firstly, we have to have price stability. So if if your rents are going up 2 3 4 5% a year, okay, that's one thing. But we've seen in the last 12 months, if you go to places like Manchester, Liverpool, um, Torbay, the strangest places, rents going on average by 15 to 20% in those places I just listed. Uh, I think nationally, I think we saw rents go up about 14% in the last year. So that's the first thing. We need to have price stability. And the question is, h- how do you get there? On the home ownership thing, it's interesting because I, I, I've i been persuaded of this argument you're making. It's obviously the case in London, which is we want more people to have housing security under the present system, housing security basically equals home ownership. So it's a perfectly sensible thing as a progressive to say people should be able to get on the property ladder. That's a perfectly sensible thing to say. It's perfectly coherent. 
But as you've sort of already insinuated, more people that get on the housing ladder, the less stock that's available for renters, the more expensive it is for renters. And again, I can return back to how I was introduced to this show, my personal story. So we have a terraced house. It's a three-bedroom house. Um, it, I should say it's a larger three-bedroom house. So, you know, there's a study and stuff. And the buildings either side of us are HMOs. One is six beds, one is seven beds. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I would say, oh, that's outrageous. They're squeezed in like sardines, which they are. Whenever I'm annoyed by something, I think, thank God, I'm not on that side of the divide anymore. Do you know what I mean? I'm not living like that. I'm living in a, a very comfortable sort of existence. But on the other, those are the only properties right now, particularly in larger cities, where we're seeing an increase in supply. So the landlords doing that would say, well, you can hate on me all you like, Aaron Bastani, but that house is now providing housing for six, seven people. I would then push back and say, well, what are the psychological overheads? Loneliness, you know, uh, you can't build and foster strong communities when people live like, you know, sardines and Tupperware, but fine. that's It's inarguable, I think, that those people are adding the real supply. And then there's me and my wife. Hopefully we'll have a child soon. You know, that's three people in one house, right? So I, I, I buy the argument. And I think we, as people who want to solve this problem, have to have a much stronger argument uh, to push back on. Then finally, I, I would sort of say that we do need to make buy to less attractive. We have to make them less attractive. Now, let's not say we don't want people... To landlords, you mean? Yeah. We, let's not say we, we don't want people doing them because, of course, we go back to the issue we, we just touched upon. But right now, I mean, maybe Gary will be on top of this more than I will because he's, you know, this is his life. He knows the data. But right now, as an investment, people still look at buy-to-lets as 8 9%, 10% a year. I know, I know, you know, interest rates are changing all the time. But you can listen to the property podcast and they'll say, great place to invest now, Derby. You've got really strong manufacturing jobs there like Bombardier, um, you know, uh, they build train carriages up there, MOD contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Good manufacturing jobs. Housing's really cheap. You can really, really see big returns if you invest in Derby as a buy landlord, 8 9 10%. I don't think you should be able to do that. And I also think that's really bad and negative for, for the rest of the economy because those people should be putting money into small businesses. They should be, hey, you know what? Imagine risking your capital to start a business. Heaven forbid, that used to be quite normal. So, you know, it's people starting uh, a laundrette or a corner shop or a cafe or a plumbing business or an electrician's business or lending the money to somebody else who's going to start one of those businesses. But instead, the returns are still very, very, very attractive on buy to let. Now, that could capsize very quickly. And then that, that becomes an interesting question, right? Because we've got no new supply and we've buggered up uh, buy to let landlords. But I think it's something to think about. The rates of return are still really, really good in some places. That may end this year because you know we might get to mortgage rates averaging six, seven, eight percent this year. I suppose there's also the question of. So I think kind of what you're raising, Gary, and I suppose that that challenge because I I think I mean we've had this conversation before. I think sort of the the moral relationship between a buy to let landlord or any landlord and their tenant is fundamentally immoral. I think essentially what you've got is someone who has a large amount of capital who is able to get a mortgage who then gets someone with less capital to work to pay for their mortgage. So I think it is, it's a fundamentally immoral relationship. At the same time, I think the consequence of making buy-to-let landlordism less attractive. So one option is potentially that the buy-to-let landlords sell up and a household moves in. And that, you know, that's good for the household who moves in. 
Um, potentially, it could reduce the number of bedrooms available, as you described when you said, you know, your neighbors have six people living in a similar house to which you have two people living in. The other option, which I think you're sort of intimating towards, is it might just be that it gets bought up by another rich person who, who just sits on it and doesn't rent it out. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you, I think it's worth asking, like running through this thought experiment in your head, you know, to so say, you know, Aaron, Aaron, as he says, he's got HMOs either side, you know, and, and let's say Aaron was phenomenally wealthy and he decided, oh, you know what? Let's buy these two out and make myself a mansion. You know what I mean? You've decreased landlordism massively and you've also made 13 people lose their home you know mm. so i think there's I, th I think there's something i find quite interesting so you know i come from a poor background right and then i worked in the city i've been to lse i've been to oxford um i grew up in ilford which is a very very immigrant area and um but i went to grammar school i got expelled from grammar school i went to comprehensive so i know people from a lot of different backgrounds um the people i know have gone into buy to let landlordism are not the it's not the rich people I know. It's the immigrant families who've gone into buy to landlordism. Um, and the rich people I know, what they have is big pensions and big family property. They're richer than my friends who are buy to let landlordism. And the reason, they are, the reason that is like that is because buy to let landlordism is a very hassle way to make money, right? When you consider my rich friends, they just have stocks in their pension. They don't have to deal with replacing boilers. And I'm not trying to defend landlords here, but I think there's a sort of a, there's an interesting part of this debate. We have created a society where if you don't have wealth, your kids are going to have a difficult life. That's the society we live in, right? And there's these kind of working class strivers who are trying to build up in property. And we're saying, well, these are the bad guys. At the same time, you know, there's people who have big pensions and big houses. And we're saying they're okay, even though they're richer. So I think there's a bit of a, there's a, for me, there's a bit of a worrying class aspect when it becomes very much, these are the wrong kinds of rich people and these are the right kinds of rich people. You know, um, Ultimately, there's a question here of how do we provide affordable, good quality, secure housing in a very unequal society? And I would say we should address the inequality, but failing that, we need to look at what we could do in the meantime. And just to clarify, I'm not against rent controls. I think the current situation of renters being liable at any point to being kicked out, to having massive increases in rent, it's ridiculous. It leads to bad mental health situations and i think we need to try and secure this as much as possible but um i don't think rent controls would work as the sole answer yeah so I, I, what you're saying here is so so important and i i think my, sort of my friends people i knew people i grew up with the ones who've gone into buy to lets overwhelmingly immigrants overwhelmingly some of them actually do, doing very well anyway they're, they're making good money regardless but they've gone into that anyway and the reason why, and actually some of them will be listening to this conversation and they would agree with lots of it. They would say, yeah, the economic model we have is completely dysfunctional, but building on what Gary just said, I don't have a, I don't have a private pension. This is my pension pot. You know, so yes, it's going to see a massive inc increase in equity, but basically I'll sell it when I'm 65 and that's what I'll live on. I'm not going to live on, you know, a state pension. They might be self-employed, so they're not paying in national insurance contributions, right? Or they might only have 10 years national insurance contributions. If you have, you can have 35 years, you get the full state pension, 185 quid. 10 years national insurance contributions. My dad's a taxi driver. He's, like, he's only paid 10 years. It's 50 pound a week. It's 50 pound <laughs> a fucking week. So somebody in that situation, say a taxi driver, if he came into money... I've had this argument with him before, by the way. But if he came into 200 grand, of course he would start a buy-to-let. He hasn't got a private pension. The state pension is not very high. You know, 
It doesn't make him evil. He's not coming into 200 grand. And I, I've said to him, but if you did this, this would mean exploiting people in a really profound way, right? And it, yes, it would be paying for your pension. I understand you need to get ahead. I get that. But you have to understand this is this has a big moral downside. So I think what you're saying, Gary, is hugely, hugely important. And it's a big question to people, you know, for the people listening. It's changed now because of interest rate changes. But if somebody came into two, three hundred thousand pounds for most of the last 25 years in this country, they would have got a buy to let. Decent rate of return and an asset which is growing in value over time. That that would be the if you believe in maximizing economic utility, if that's what we all are as human beings, which of course we're not, but many, many people are, then that's exactly what you would do. And and they would say, you know what, you're right, it's destroying communities. Yes, the money should be in businesses. Yes, it would help reinvigorate the high street and help the normal economy, but that's not the world we're in. And I need to look after number one. Yeah. I think there's an element as well of people from working class backgrounds. They don't really know what other investment opportunities there are. You know, if, if you, people from middle class backgrounds, they understand about how to buy stocks and shares, how to invest in the stock market. People from working class backgrounds, they don't know that, but they've all interacted with the property market because, you know, very often their parents own property, you know, most properties are owned in this country. And that's the only real way they know how to accumulate wealth. And it, what, when you create this society where wealth ownership is so important, it's so important. You know, if, if you come from a family that does not own wealth, even if your kids get good jobs, they're going to struggle. So when you create this society where wealth inequality is so important and you, people from poorer backgrounds, the only way they really know to accumulate serious wealth is to buy property. And then when you turn around and say buying lots of properties is bad, you know, and you come from a family where your dad's got a nice pension and a big house, you know, it starts to feel a little bit like, and look a little bit like ladder pulling. Yeah, I feel like there's also, I think actually the way you've been putting this is very clarifying for me. It's something I've been sort of wrestling with or grappling with through doing this podcast. I think I started the series thinking the immoral thing is renting out an asset because it's sort of, you, you didn't build the asset, but someone else is paying you to occupy it. I actually think the real problem is owning more assets than you need, right? Because, and I think you can think about this in terms of, you know, circles in London, I move in, you know, lots of different class backgrounds. And there are people who are sort of wealthy enough that their parents can buy them a flat or whatever. And they buy a flat and, you know, it's nice, maybe has two bedrooms, maybe has a study. Then you have someone else who sort of decides to get a, a mortgage where to help pay their mortgage, they rent out one of the rooms to a friend. And then everyone's like, well, you're a landlord. So yeah. they demonize that person because they're a landlord but they don't demonize the person who's under occupying a flat because they were rich enough to buy it outright. And so it's mm. actually, the issue is the issue is not, do you decide to rent out your asset or not? The issue is, are you sitting on more assets than you need? Yeah. And that gets us to the root of a bigger question, which is the growth in wealth inequality in general. And I think that for, for me, I, I mean, I always go on about wealth inequality, but I think this is the heart of it, which is, you know, when there is a drive for the assets to be owned by fewer and fewer people, and that includes land, that includes property, how do we give ordinary people access to this property? And I, I mean, you know, I say this a lot, but I do believe this. I think unless you, we as a society get serious about growing wealth inequality, we are always going to struggle to fix this problem of housing affordability. If, if you go back to 150 years ago in this country when wealth was much, much more unequal, housing was totally unaffordable. If you go look at India, go look at Brazil, you know, go look at South Africa, these really unequal countries. Housing is totally unaffordable and people live in, in very, very poor conditions. So I think there is a root cause of, of inequality there. And I know that's difficult to solve. And in the meantime, we should look at what we can do in the meantime to make things better. But there is a, a deeper problem beneath. I want to introduce two people into the conversation who aren't in the room. One of them is called David from Bristol. Um, and he wrote into, I think it's the Times, with this moral quandary. 
I own a mortgage-free flat that has had an excellent tenant since January 2016. During this time, I have increased the rent on two occasions by modest amounts. I last did this a year ago, and now the rent is well below market rent. I have no particular personal financial need to increase the rent to the market rate, yet it would represent a substantial increase to the tenant, a single mother with a child. Should I look to increase the rent even though I don't need the money? If so, should I aim to do this gradually over time? Finally, would I be better off asking a letting agent to manage the property and increase the rent when they think it necessary? Now, I love that last question because basically what he's saying is, I know this is completely morally unjustifiable for me to increase the rent, but maybe if I uh, sort of uh, outsource this decision to a property manager, then I can just see the money coming in without seeing the harm that me increasing the rent is doing. Um, And actually, the second person I want to introduce um, into this uh, conversation is Michael Gove. Uh, he is speaking to Laura Koonsberg on the BBC and I suppose potentially speaking in a way which we might not be that familiar with from a Tory politician. We've heard this week from BBC viewers and also from the official statistics that rents are going up Yes. very significantly. We've heard anecdotal evidence of rents sometimes going up by 20, 25, even 30%. Is it acceptable for landlords to be putting rent up above inflation? Uh, most circumstances, no. And what are you going to do about landlords who are doing that? Well, we're bringing forward reforms um, a little bit later this year, in just a couple of months' time, actually, uh, to look at how the private rented sector can be better regulated. We're not talking about rent freezes or rent caps, but we are talking about protection for tenants. At the moment, there is a situation where tenants can be uh, evicted without any fault on their part, and some, a tiny minority, of unscrupulous landlords are using the threat of eviction in order to jack up rents and to victimise tenants. Now, it's it's important that we recognise, as your question does, that a healthy private rented sector is absolutely vital to making sure that people have the right home at the right place at the right time, but we do need to make sure that we protect tenants from um, unscrupulous landlords, even as we also give landlords the power to get rid of anti-social tenants as well. And do you think, just briefly, that there are landlords, some of them right now, who are profiteering, who are using the context of what's going on to make profit at the expense of their tenants? In every market, there will always be actors who will attempt to exploit circumstances in their interests, not in the public interest, yes. Now, there's a couple of things I found very interesting about that clip. So one, it's sort of Michael Gove, Tory politician, who seems to be being a lot tougher on landlords than we've heard from any, especially from what we heard from New Labour when they were in power. They were very much in favour of sort of buy-to-let landlords and market forces sort of being able to work their magic um, in in the private rental sector. The other is, I I think he, you know, he seems like he's half got it, but he also seems to be living a bit on a different planet because he seems to be suggesting there is a minority of landlords who will use the threat of rent increases to get out their tenants. But that's that's just how the system works. So th- they will never say, we want to increase your rent or we'll evict you. What they'll say is, if you want to renew your contract, it's going to be this much. And then you say, oh, I can't pay this much, so I'm going to move out. And then, you know, that no one, no one said, I'm here to evict you because you won't pay higher rents. But that's essentially what's happened. So he, he has just described how the rental system works, but made it seem like a sort of aberration when actually it's, just people following the rule. That, that's the norm, not, not an aberration. I mean, I suppose, can I get you to comment on either of those things? I suppose, like, wh- why are we hearing Michael Gove saying this now? And also, is, is he kind of living on a different planet, even if he's almost there? Do you want to start, Aaron? Yeah, the first one, that person who wrote into the Times, what was their name? David from Bristol. David. So when you read that story out, it reminded me of the landlord who used to um, rent out a property to my mother. 
he's much nicer than David. His name was Albert Veshley. He was a Holocaust survivor. And he was really good to my mum because she was raising me by herself. I mean, my dad was in my life. But they didn't live together. And we lived in a flat in Bournemouth with no central heating above his chemist. He, was a, he owned a pharmacy. And he said, look, you've got a son. I have a flat in a nicer part of Bournemouth with a garden. Go move there. And it was incredibly cheap. And she still couldn't pay the rent half the time. And he said, look, pay me when you can. And you know, my dad would pay six months lump sum or whatever. And he was a you know wonderful man. So when we you know we made that made that baseball cap, hate landlords. You know, was was Albert Veshley a, a horrific man? Absolutely not. One of the nicest men you could ever hope to meet. One of the nicest people you could ever hope to meet. But what's interesting is that I I, I do think, and maybe I'm wrong, I do think people are that are a dying breed because we live in a society which is increasingly moving away from the ethical anchoring of religion. We just are. And I think for him, and I think for the the community he was in, I think it would have been extraordinary to do something like that. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen. You know, we look at you know Charles Dickens, you know, Christmas Carol, you had horrible people, shysters, you know, 150 years ago. But I think in a secular society, in a capitalist secular society, which is where we live, where the guiding principle of social interaction is maximization of profit, which is where we're moving towards, right? We're, we're moving out of the shell of 20th century social democracy, which included mass home ownership and social housing and so on. We're moving away from that. And in a world guided by nothing but profit maximization, this guy's the norm. He doesn't believe in anything. It's the, it's the, the neoliberal self. I, he literally views himself as a profit maximizing unit because that's what the textbooks say, right? We've moved from one kind of book, you know, the sort of the teachings of monotheistic faiths and, and whatnot, you might not agree with them. You might, you know, you don't, don't mean you believe that God exists or whatever, but you can agree with the, the fact, which I think is undeniable, that they offered a broad framework for, for basically social rules to govern society. We're moving away from that now. You know, for for a very long time, charity was viewed as the cardinal virtue. We still had many bad people, but there was this idea that charity was important. And if you go back, sort of, to the early decades of, of of capitalism. Karl Polanyi talks about this, you know, before really we see the beginnings of capitalism, as, as we see the beginnings of capitalism, he talks about the moral economy of like Elizabethan England, how, you know, uh, everyday welfareism before it was administered by the state is really administered by what we would today call civil society organisations, often faith-based. That's gone. And, and that's what it reminded me of. It's like, this isn't, and that man is not evil, right? I'm sure he's a perfectly pleasant chap. I'm sure he's very nice. But what he's talking about for somebody like Albert Veshley, is deeply immoral, ungodly. And it's a, I think that, to me, is a real totem of the civilization we now live in. Somebody who's quite banal, probably quite pleasant. He'd probably buy you a nice cup of tea in an M&S cafe, saying, you know what, of course I'll make a, a single mum homeless because I want a bit more money, even though I don't need it. This is a message from me, Michael Walker, a week or so after that recording with Gary and Aaron. As you might be able to tell from my voice, I've been floored by a pretty nasty flu, but I'm here to say that that was the end of the first part of my conversation with Aaron and Gary, but there's a whole other hour of chat. Over the final 60 minutes of the discussion, we debated whether Labour can be trusted to build council homes if taxing land is politically possible, what Gary made of living in Tokyo, and whether we should all live in high-rises in Britain. I also continued to be surprised by the frequent references to religion in the chat, and Gary told me an intriguing biblical fable that speaks to the politics of inheritance in Britain. As I say, these guys have range, and you won't want to miss it. 
That extra hour of chat is bonus content for our brilliant and generous Patreon subscribers. If you aren't one already, you can sign up for as little as £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That will give you access to all bonus episodes in this series, all bonus episodes in future series. And if that wasn't enough, you'll also be making this show financially sustainable. That's patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. We at the Crash Course team really do appreciate it. 